Welcome to Cold Coffee Podcasts, and with us today we have Joe Renshaw, and we are sharing our positive inspiration from positive people. And Joe is one of those lovely people that very positive, inspirational, and an absolute pleasure to to talk to. So, hi, Joe. Hello, James. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Oh, I try. I'm getting more and more professional. No, I'm not. <laughs> but it's it's lovely to see you. It really is. And Everyone out there would love to hear your story. So if you'd like to share it with us, that would be wonderful. Away yeah. you go. Thank you. I think it would be useful to start um, in my very early teens, where I was always really fascinated by photography. And <clears throat> my grandpa gave my brother and sister and I each a project to do. Excuse me. And the project he gave me was a camera that he'd found on the golf course. Uh, He was the secretary of a golf club. So he'd had to save it for three months in case it was claimed from lost property. And it wasn't. So he gave me this Olympus trip and I loved it. And there grew my love of taking photographs. And so when I was, I think, about 16, I went, I didn't do A-levels. I went on to college to do a B-tech in photography in Nottingham, having grown up in Leicester. And it was my absolute dream to to have anything to do with photography, be around studios, photographers, because it was a very exciting time in photography then. That didn't happen. I ended up becoming a nanny, which I loved equally, loved working with little children. But I never stopped taking photographs. And when I was, I think I was 21, I was working as a nanny in a lovely village in Leicestershire, And I got introduced to a local photographer. And this local photographer had very recently combined his studio with two other local photographers. And they'd set up this amazing space in the centre of Leicester called the Mill Studios on Millstone Lane. They had acquired from the council a building that was, it had been an old brewery, I think. And what was so great about it was it had a, space big enough that you could drive a car into so they built this infinity cove and a glass ceiling so you could photograph a car in daylight in the studio excuse me and I was offered the job of receptionist to look after the main business which was hiring the studio and then to look after also the three photographers who'd established this place and who had their own businesses there So I sort of did their bookkeeping and I remember being very excited when they went and bought a word processor. This was 1990, end of 94, I think, around about then. So it was high tech and I loved being around the industry and sending off the images to the the negatives to the lab. But very, very quite quickly into my time there, I started a relationship with one of the photographers. His name was Jeff. Um, He had his business. He photographed advertising and editorial. He also had a very strong uh, personal practice of his own. And he had a gallery in town too. So he would champion local artists that he met. And he wanted a place to exhibit his own work. So he'd opened that that gallery some many years before I met him. So that was how I came to meet 
Jeff. And then sometime later, we had a baby. Um, and that baby is now 26 years old. Gosh. Yeah, fully, <clears throat> fully grown up. I'm just wondering where's best to go next with this. Um, Sorry, you can just do a pause mm. and I'll cut it and then I can cut it. So how did the relationship start? How did your relationship start? You were just working together, I guess. But yeah, you tell me. we were working together and we liked each other. We went out for a meal and, yeah, before we, we knew it, we were in a relationship. And I then I was 22 sure. and he was 41. And in my mind... So there was a, quite an age gap. Yeah, there was a big age gap. <clears throat> Excuse me, I've got such a frog in my throat today. In my mind, my young... That's right naive mind then he was an established business owner he had a car and a business and a house and the background I came from had sort of conditioned me to be ready for marriage and family and okay. you know it might sound mercenary of me to be saying well there's this, this man with kind of ready-made house and and all the thing nothing I had to do but there's <laughs> I didn't I didn't have great ambitions to be have a huge career or be a business owner at all. My ambitions were to take photographs and be a wife and a mother. So <clears throat> there was this okay. scenario I walked into. It was this lovely home, and he wanted a baby. So it was a sort of match made in heaven in that way. Made absolute sense to me. But it wasn't long after I moved in with him that I it became apparent to me that he was very, very heavy drinker. And again, because I was right. so young, I didn't really appreciate the impact of that on our lives, on the impact of, yeah, the quantity of alcohol that he drank. And it had a huge impact on us. Yeah. Did you not see that or did you choose not to see it or well, were you I, naive? I was naive. I I think I saw it. And so this is the mid-90s, bear in mind. Drinking in advertising mm -hmm. was very, very common. Probably a little bit less so than the 80s, but <clears throat> it was not unheard of for the photographers to go out to lunch with the client and have a bottle of red wine each and oh, then drinks in the bar, uh, studio bar after work and then go home. So... Yeah, it was kind of an all-day thing. And because he was that much older than me, I think it hadn't – I hadn't realized how long he'd been in that, that pattern of drinking so much, which I still don't know yeah. when he started drinking that much. And I think also because I loved him and I thought everything could be figured out, I thought I could help him stop and make him drink less having no clue about the ramifications of addiction at all. So I think, um, you know, is... with hindsight, we know that if someone's addicted to any sort of subs substance or process, no amount of anyone else saying to them, hey, you've got to stop this is going to help. And no. what I would say no. for him is that it wasn't a problem for him until I came along and said, it's a problem. <laughs> So he was he was very content in his life. He'd lived on his own for yeah, yeah. four years before I came along. He was in a, a routine and a habit of that lunchtime drinking and that every Thursday night he went to the same pub with his friends that he'd 
played football with from his youth and suddenly I came mm. along and a baby and said, mm, I don't like this. Suddenly the dynamics have changed. Yeah. Actually, what happened is he ended up drinking more. <laughs> the more I, the more I cajoled. He did, he did have a couple of times where he tried to stop. He had medication from the doctor. I don't know if that's still a medication that's given out. Um, I think he might have gone to one or two AA meetings back then, but he was very, very unkeen to do that. He'd had, he'd had grown up in the church. His mother was, had a strong faith, and they went to a very strong evangelical church locally, and he hadn't had an, a great experience. So having, having me come along and say, well, you should do this, he'd already had a long time of being told what he should do. So I don't think he was particularly interested in being told what to do, as any adult is really. The connotations of higher power that are talked about in AA were, were not appealing to him. So he was, he was reluctant to go to AA, which I completely understand. So yes, It's really funny, isn't it, how... AA is good for some, but other people it's just an anathema. I know it's helped so many people enormously. And yeah. I got some help from, there's an organization called Al-Anon, which is for family members of yes. alcoholics. And that was really, really, really helpful for me. If you want long-term success from it, you have to apply the teachings that they practice, that they teach, and commit to it. And I know... I know people who've had great success from it. I also know people who've not gelled with it at all. So horses for courses, isn't it? Absolutely. So I stayed with him. <clears throat> so, so I stayed with him until our daughter had just turned two. Around about the time she turned two, it, I, the whole scenario was very, very stressful. He was really drinking heavily and was very verbally abusive. I think when when you're in a relationship with yourself where you're not treating yourself well, it's it's easy to treat the people who are close to you not so well as well. And I wasn't being treated very well. And I was frightened a lot of the Absolutely. time. I was frightened and confused and I thought I should I thought I should be able to help him. And I thought I was failing because he wasn't getting help. So it was a really confusing and scary time. I moved out, and within about six months of leaving, how old were you? Uh, when I when I in left, this period, how, what was? So my, our daughter was born when I was twenty three, and I left when I was twenty five. So when I think now, so no, no age really. No, nothing. Our daughter's twenty six years old now, and I look at her and think, golly, you know, I had a three year old by then. Not to yeah. say that she should exactly. at all, but how. No. And, and I knew nothing. I was just so naive, so naive about so many things. She and I moved down here to Brighton. I had a bunch of friends that were moving here, and I thought, I just want to get away. And my both my parents had moved away from Leicester. My sister had gone with my mum. They'd gone over to North Norfolk. Um, um, I think my brother was at college in London then, and all my school friends had gone off to university and left the city. So there was no none of my original friends left around. And I thought, what am I hanging around for? There's a whole bunch of people I know moving to Brighton. Sounds like it would be a fun life down there. I think it would be fun to raise a kid by the sea. 
So I decided Absolutely. I moved here within about three weeks. So that was the end. That oh, was, really? That quick? Yeah, really quick. We rented a really sweet little flat on Albany Villas. My, our, my daughter's father drove us down. So all this time we stayed in touch because I wanted her to always have a relationship with him because the fallout was between me and him, not yeah. him and her. And I had my dad around. I still okay. have my dad around. My dad and I are very close. Who am I to That's lovely. Who am I to like banish a relationship between a father and a child? So yeah, yeah. he when we were still in Leicester, she was she was still very little, so she wasn't doing overnight stays or anything then. But a couple of years after we moved down here, he moved down here as well. But in between those two years, the company that the studio that I'd gone to work for went bankrupt. Yeah. The gallery closed and I think his main studio business closed. And the, the company went bankrupt because his business partner had run yeah. off and left all the debts of the company. So suddenly he had like oh, another God. just piles and piles of stress. And I know then his drinking was really extreme. So he moved down here and within about a year was diagnosed with diabetes, which seemed very obvious to me how he had become diabetic. Yeah. But he, he denied that for the whole time. He told us it was hereditary. <laughs> he told us the doctors had no idea how, it was, how he'd got it. And so then, then ensued another kind of, well, I want to say about 12 or 13 years of really big stress between me and him. Our daughter had oh every other weekend with him. By then she was a bit older. So we did that thing where she went every other weekend. Yeah, but he and I had very different parenting styles. Very different parenting styles. He was, mm. he, I, I'm a pretty Is liberal it, parent. I'm just going to say about the diabetes thing. I think it's a blokey thing because I was diagnosed a long time ago. And, oh, no, right. I can get rid of it. I can do this. And I still kept eating the same old crap. Oh, right. And I didn't. I'm now on insulin. Right. Oh. And I've, I've spoken to a lot of diabetics. And yeah, it's uh, it's oh no, it's somebody else. It won't affect me. Yeah, I'm sure. So I think that's that's quite a. Yeah, I'm sure there was a really huge element of that, and I'm and I'm think there was probably a big element of. I, I guess he never told the doctors how much he drank, and I guess it perhaps never came up in the conversation with the doctors. So perhaps you know, I'm not saying yeah. that he he concocted it, but he was very he was very confused about how it had come about, and it seems really really obvious to me and everyone else who knew him over those next years until our daughter was about 16 we did that thing where she had every other night every other weekend with him and probably one night during the week but yeah there was lots oh, of super. tension about who would was she allowed to watch this tv program that i wouldn't let her watch you know it's like so she there were arguments about our parenting styles his drinking continued to get Worse and worse and worse. And then... Were you not concerned about her uh, staying with him, um, you know, yeah. with the, on the drink element? Yeah, very, very concerned about that. There was one time okay. when we had to go to, we had to go to court to agree a particular matter. I had to make a request to the judge that he not drink so much. And it was tricky because there was no evidence that he was drinking while she was there. He always denied it. Oh. So we had a, we did have an incident when she was about nine years old, eight or nine years old. I was studying in 
Forest Row. I was training to be a Steiner school teacher. And the course was one weekend, one full weekend, once a month on campus. She would stay with him in Brighton and I would go out with my friends on a Friday night and spend the weekend there. And one Friday evening, I'd arrived at the college in Forest Row and my mobile my mobile rang and it was our daughter. And she said, dad's asleep. I can't wake him up. I haven't had any dinner. Oh. The bed isn't made. And I don't really know what to do. And I'm a bit scared. At this point, I was 40 miles away without a car. You know, when you're when you when you have any like inkling that your child is unsafe, it was honestly one of the most horrible That's terrible. of my life, James. Yeah, absolutely. So I collared a friend and I said, I need to get back to Brighton really urgently, really, really quickly. And in the meantime, I rang um, our daughter's godfather, who was nearby, and I said, can you go round and see what's going on? Because I don't know what's going on. And when I did mm. get there, he'd, he'd come to, he'd woken up. He was tired and groggy and aggressive. And it turned out he had been drinking and he'd also had some um, antidepressants. So he he basically conked out. And I just had to run in the flat and grab her and run out again with this great, it was like a scene out of EastEnders. It was something I never, I don't really want to remember, but it was very scary for her. So years later. Absolutely. I can't imagine the stress that both of you went through. Yeah, yeah. It was really scary. And it was, what was also scary, and I I'm, don't know if other people who've experienced life with an addict, was that lots of my friends didn't believe me. Because he was very charming. He was a lovely man. and But I was the only person he really exhibited that behavior to. So lots of people mm -hmm. thought I was making it up. And if he and I had had any kind of disagreement, he would he would embellish stories about me to them. Again, stories that he believed. I don't think oh, he was yeah. maliciously going out of his way to badmouth me. But but my friends and my community built up an impression of me that was that was false, and it was very isolating. So yeah, traumatic situation for our daughter. But nonetheless, I, I, I get that. I've been in that position. Have you? Yeah, it's scary, mm. isn't it? I've been in that position, to be honest, Joe. As a parent, or and a it kid. is scary. Where, as a parent, um, yeah, as a, as a, as a as a husband, yeah, she, I, she used to crawl around on the floor, um, because they were watching through the window, so right. all the time the curtains were drawn and they would be watching, but if somebody knocked at the door, she would jump up, stand up, and go to the door and go, "Hi, oh, how are you? Come in. Would you like a cup of coffee?" And the minute the, that conversation or that person had gone, back on the floor. Oh. So, and it was, she used to call it her normal act. So I've, I've been there, I've experienced it. I've, you know, it's, uh, it's horrendous. So my heart goes out to you for that. Mm. Anyway, yeah. Carry on. So where were we? Yeah, when we got to our daughter being about 16, Things changed because there was there was no longer any requirement for a legal agreement about where she was. Mm -hmm. so, and she then divided her time between me and him. And she was at college. And quite soon after that, she had a Saturday job. And he was then making a film. He'd stop. He stopped doing stills commercial work, but he was making this film that he'd written the script for. And I then did the stills. 
I was at college doing photography. Some many years later, having come back to photography, I was doing the stills on his film. And suddenly the heat and the anger went just completely vanished. It just went away. And he he appeared to me <laughs> just as someone I knew that I'd happened to have a child with many years ago. And it became a pleasure to see him around. And we were neighbours and I mean, we weren't like super close buddy buddies, but occasionally we'd have a cup of coffee. Occasionally he'd ring me and okay. we'd have a conversation about our daughter. But it was really, uh -huh. after she turned 16, it, it was nice. And that we found peace in our relationship. And for that, I thank God a great deal that, that water flows under the bridge. <laughs> and we were both Absolutely. willing to, to drop whatever had gone on. He was still drinking, but I wasn't so enmeshed with him anymore. And I think part of that is to do with the fact that I trusted that my daughter was safer now that she was older. And I'd I'd moved yeah. on. I'd I'd been through my own therapy. I'd done my own work and I'd I'd extricated myself from that in a way. That those few years were just very calm, very peaceful, pleasant. If you enjoy listening to Cold Coffee Podcasts, I would love to support the programme. Then head over to Patreon at Cold Coffee Podcasts and become a member. This helps us to keep supporting the production of the show and also 10% of all contributions go to our chosen charities. Um, and then when our daughter was 19, she decided to go off travelling to Australia for three months. He had a sister in Australia and two cousins over there. So she had a perfect place to go to. So she bought a ticket for three months. She went just before her 20th birthday. And we had a lovely trip as a family up to Heathrow Airport. We waved her off at the gate. And then oh, he and I, I drove that. home kind of sobbing like, oh, that's it. Our baby's grown up and, and gone away. And what a lovely, what a nice job. Your little we did. girl's grown up. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was a sweet time. So she was there. October she was due to come home at the end of January so I think she'd she's gone at the beginning of November mid-October that kind of time and about a week before Christmas I was in Kemp Town in a shop and our daughter's boyfriend at the time rang me and he said I've just driven past her dad's house I've just walked past her dad's house and I've seen him being carted out in an ambulance they've taken him off to hospital I think you better go there and find out what's going on. And I said, oh, thanks for letting me know. Mm. Dropped everything, went straight to A&E and was able to find out that he had been found collapsed in his flat. They weren't sure how long he'd been unconscious. And at that point, they didn't know what's wrong with him. Turns out it was pancreatitis. And again, oh. the, doctors in, yeah, the doctors in the intensive care unit said to me, we've no idea how, how come he's developed pancreatitis. And I said, well, it is, you do have a record of him being an alcoholic, don't you? And they said, we didn't know that. So then the doctor said to me, he's probably got about a month to live. He's very frail. So I had to ring my daughter in oh, my then near Brisbane and say, you've got to come home, love, because dad's not in a great way. So we really thought he was going to pass away then. Everybody, everybody rallied, everyone came together. And I would always say about him, he had an incredibly strong and determined character. He'd, 
if I look back at his life now, I think, wow, he'd built an amazing business. He'd built a gallery. He'd built a great reputation for himself as yeah, an yeah. artist in the 80s. So he survived this bout of pancreatitis. So then he had diabetes with insulin dependency mm. and pancreatitis. And then about 18 months after that, he was diagnosed with bowel cancer. So it was the three major things that are listed as like adverse effects of extreme alcoholism. Our daughter said to him after he, was, after he came out of hospital with pancreatitis, she said, I love you, Dad, but if you keep drinking, I'm going to stay away. And he promised he would stop That's drinking. That's tough. Yeah, it was really tough. It was really tough, but she... It was very her, traumatic for her. Yeah, it was really traumatic for her having to come back from yeah. the other side of the world. And I really admire her mm. her boundary setting and her ability to stand for herself and what, what she was willing to tolerate from him. And she said it with great love. And they had a period of time where they, they spent a lovely time together. And then he did start drinking again. And so she stayed away. Around that time as well, her career began to take off. So she was very busy in her work. She was seeing less and less of him anyway, because we do see less of our parents when we get into our 20s, right? It's not like we have to go and call on them every day. So she was living her life. And every so often they would talk on the phone. And it was kind of, yeah, she said it was a hard relationship to have with him, but she still loved him nonetheless. Um, and then, of course, the pandemic came and she particularly stayed away in the pandemic because he was vulnerable. He by that time, he had a colostomy bag and he'd had he'd had the surgery oh. to remove the tumor. So his health was really poor and she didn't want to put him at risk anyway. And then fast forward to summer 20. Gosh, where are we? Summer 2021 in September her one of her aunts he was one of five children one of her aunts contacted me and she said I'm in town trying to get hold of your daughter she's not answering just let will you let her know I'm around because I'd love to see her so I sent a message to our daughter they met up and had a coffee and it was there that she found out her dad had actually been in hospital for a month already and nobody had told her nobody had let her know she was she then had to go into action and and start we we then spent the last three months of his life visiting him in hospital regularly and and doing what one does when someone's at the end of their life taking care of next of kinship and yeah kind of looking that's beautiful that's so lovely to do that it was you know and I, i take my hat off yeah it was really really tough james but it was it was lovely to Um, do it and it meant that I think um, the three of us were able to make more peace together as well because by that time, okay, yeah, he was ill, and so he passed away. For both you and your daughter, Joe, to to do that and hold nothing, you know, against your your ex. I think that's lovely. I think that. Thank you. I think that it was more important for me to. This is what helped me, and this is what always helped me through more and more as as I grew up, that I think the three of us made an agreement in the heavens before we came to earth to work in this life together on the on the issues that we had to work on. And so I think our daughter chose us 
I think she sat in the heavens and said, I'll have you and you. You two need to work together and I need to work with you. And so it, it felt really important to keep honoring that contract and that part of my task, and I think part of her task as well, was to help steward him through to the other side in his last weeks and days on that part. You've mentioned this or mentioned this. You told me this before in when I did our research interview. And I just think it's brilliant. And I, I totally believe in, in this. I really do. And I, I just think it's so wonderful and so lovely. And I hope people get that message of how negative hate is. And, you know, even if a, a, a relationship falls apart, you can still care for a human being. Yeah, totally. And also, what I've come to understand since he crossed over is that I was the only person he, he demonstrated that behavior to, but I was the only person who he could demonstrate it to. I, and he was teaching me all the way through. He was teaching me really valuable lessons about how yeah. to value myself and how to love myself. And I think, too, as well, he felt safe enough to, sh to share some of his trauma with me, things that he hadn't shared with anybody else. Mm. So when I when I kind of reframed it all in that way, it does feel so much better because what if we're in a difficult relationship, it can't be for no reason. It's not just that someone yes. is bad and being mean. Right? There's always a higher purpose for it. So after after he died, we cleared out his flat and we brought everything back here and cleaned it all up. And we've got to know him in a whole different way again. Like seeing his, I'm sitting with a set of bookshelves that we took from his flat and his book collection and his cameras that we've cleaned up and his LPs, mm. and his record collection. And I have so much appreciation and warmth for him now that he took care of me and our daughter after, even still, after he passed over. We get so much pleasure from his belongings being here and we've felt his presence so many times so many times he's he i think that's that's wonderful it really is you know it's very spiritual and i i yeah and it's great and you, you that relationship is going has got better yeah but it seems because of his passing yeah for both of you and i i think it's been i think it's been helpful for our daughter of course she still feels a great deal of pain and sadness that she hasn't got her dad around but we always knew that he would die before me because of the age difference yeah yeah so she's learning to separate out different aspects of the whole scenario you know which part is about him being that much older which part is about his drinking which part is about mm. what he wanted her to learn about being a human being and and what lessons he had for her and how she values herself and her her life and her own relationships so big learnings it is it's one of those it's a it's a journey and i think we're all here and we all do specific journeys in in our lifetimes yeah and I, i'm just you know I, i'm inspired by it joe that it could have easily turned into hate and it never did it there, there were times turned it into was, understanding and there were times it was oh, hateful, yeah, I get that. for sure. I do, I do get that. Yeah, but I, ne I never wanted it to end that way. So I always had an intention to yeah. find a solution, if you will, 
And that has to, that always had to come from, did I want to be right? Or did I want to be happy? Did I want to be like the victim to the alcoholic? No, I never, ever wanted to be, have that identity or that role. Because there's always two people, aren't there? So I've had to look yes. at my, yeah. my, I've had to look at my behavior, my expectations. You know, what was I doing thinking that he would just provide me with everything? So from that, I've had to learn to really take care of myself and value myself. And provide for myself. That's it. Anyway. Is self value value? Yeah, yeah. It's self value. Yeah. And I think we all we all have these lessons. It took me a long time to to understand mine, but I got there in the end, which mm-hmm. which is wonderful. Yeah. And yeah, I think it's I think it's brilliant. So tell everyone, Joe, what you do now for a living, because that's. Uh, yeah, so now I think I'm, that's part of of this journey. Yeah, it is really. So now I'm a life coach. I did continue. So I went to university <laughs> to study photography um, when I was 36. So like around about 2010, um, which and then I ended up t- making stills photographs on his film, amongst other things. I worked as a shoot producer for a long time after I graduated and during university, actually. I produced for Topshop and I did lots of kids advertising and I ran a studio here for a guy who did fashion and editorial. But I was always interested in personal development. And as I mentioned earlier, I'd sort of been through a lot of my own therapy and kind of personal development work. I was always reading some spiritual book or some personal development book and things were helping me. It was helping me to like feel happier in my life about all sorts of things. And I thought, mm-hmm. well, if this everything I'm studying can help me, I can probably help somebody else. So became a life coach in, well, I started my business three years ago at the beginning of the pandemic, but I think all my work up to that point had been coaching. It's always about helping someone move from A to B, which that's what production is. Someone, a photographer gives you a brief yeah. and then you help them fulfill it at the end. So I, I see some great relationships between those two things. So uh, now I run a program called How to Be Your Own Best Friend. So I help people who are being their own worst enemy. And I help them build a relationship with themselves that means they will know how to take care of themselves in an excellent manner for the rest of their life. Because you're the one you have to live with. You absolutely you can yeah absolutely you take yourself wherever you go and what I really feel for him is that he he didn't have a relationship with himself he had all sorts of trauma in his childhood as so many of us do right none of us are immune to this human life but he didn't have any tools other than a bottle of some alcohol or other to help him feel better about it and so I really Mm -hmm. I really wish that he'd had that but had he had that then perhaps I'm I might not have learned the lessons I did so you know if we're ever doing things like drinking too much eating too much shopping too much if we if we're thinking that something outside of us is going to make us feel better what we're not doing is creating that better feeling from within ourselves. and so the tools that I teach now help people create that good feeling from within themselves so there's no requirement to go outside and get something to make you feel better. It's fun to go out and buy new things. Like it's not this. None of this is about abstinence from 
from normal life, but it's about creating that deep inner relationship with yourself. Because as I say, you have to be with yourself all the time. For some people, it's very hard to totally be with yourself. Agree. I was, I was there. I still remember Joe going out shopping once in, in the bad old days with the dark clouds and the men, mental illness or the mental well-being was a bit unstable. Yeah. And I came back with a really, really expensive backpack. Right. In the hope that I was going to go mountain climbing. Okay. Now, I've never climbed a bloody mountain in my life and I have no intention of ever doing it. Mm-hmm. The backpack did, however, travel around the world with me. Oh, amazing. But uh, it was, I still remember in my flat looking at it after I bought it and thinking, why? Mm. Why are you here? What, what have I done? What am I going to do with you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and was, I bet that good you know, feeling it's you learning... had, I bet that good feeling you had at the point of buying the rucksack vanished very quickly. It dissipated within minutes. Yeah, yeah. And then I had to plan what I was going to do with it. Right. And the plan was... Thank goodness to to do some uh, traveling. Oh well, so it didn't sit around. But yeah, I, I no, it didn't. No, not at all. It's been around. It's been around a lot of the world with me. Oh, amazing! Yeah, it's it. I I love this. So you now you've got a website, haven't you? I do. Yeah, it's joerenshaw.com. Joerenshaw.com. Okay, yeah. so anyone that would like to look at your your profile, etc., and what you do, yeah. Can, get you there yeah i I have a weekly newsletter that anyone is welcome to sign up to and occasionally i run free trainings online once or twice a month that's all available to my community oh all right well i I thought i was signed up to the newsletter but i'm obviously not getting it joe so therefore i haven't okay this is one of the oh i think i've done that and i haven't done it jobs all right well I'll, i'll get that sorted okay well Gosh, we've done 40 minutes, so wow. thank you so much for what you've you've said. Thank you for your telling us about your experiences and how you've dealt with your life and how your daughter has dealt with, with things as well. And I think she's more, possibly more of a, a reflection of her mother than she is of her father. And I'm not trying to diss him by any means. She's, she seems amazing as well. She is an amazing human being. She carries very strong traits with both of us. And what I feel very grateful for is that she's had two incredibly different lifestyles modeled to her. So she's had a lifestyle modeled to her of self-destruct and she's had one of someone who's working to love themselves. And she's made her choices. And so... What I'm very proud of for her and why she's such a remarkable example in the last, um, it's about 120 days now. So at the beginning of the year, she decided to stop drinking, stop smoking and stop consuming junk food and sugar. Yeah, this year she's gone from zero to being a a 10K runner. She's gone sober. She's stopped smoking. She's completely changed her life. And because what we understand is that the th- things like alcohol and tobacco and sugar will make us feel better temporarily. But if we don't really deal with the underlying causes of what our emotional pain is, if we're trying to deal with it with external substances like shopping or over-consuming, they don't really go yeah. away. What, 
what she and I have both found is that we've been able to experience the grief of his death as clean pain because grief and sadness and anger are very normal human emotions and human beings spend a long time and a lot of effort trying to get away from those things. And what I really teach my clients and what I've been teaching my daughter as well is that they are not emotions to be avoided. They're emotions to be embraced. Life is 50-50. We didn't come here for life to be easy. We came here for those hard lessons. And so she's a real example of that. I'm incredibly proud of her. Perfect. And so you should be. All right, Joe, we're going to wind it up, I think. And yeah, my guest today has been Joe Renshaw. And absolutely beautiful words. And thank you so much for the for the inspiration. And um, yeah, that's it. So I'll speak to you later. It's powerful inspiration by positive